Welcome to the Post Media Off the Post podcast where we talk about the news, views, themes, and all sorts of news items that you need to know inside the NHL each week. I am Paul Chapman. I'm joined by Edmonton's Jim Matheson. Jim, how are things for you today? Uh, pretty good. That's good. Same old Oilers. Same, same old Oilers. <laughs> well, same old Oilers, but they're not really because they have a new coach, which is what I wanted to ask you about. Um, we saw this week the first GM fall uh, in Paul Holmgren, and we've seen you know several coaches, including some big names. I'd put Todd McClellan in there. Obviously, Joel Quenville went earlier in the year. LA had already made a change. You know what is it about this year? We didn't see any really last year, and this year we seem to have teams being impatient all over the place. What's changed? Uh, I think last year the teams were waiting for one team for the the shoe to drop with one team, and then they could say, "Okay, I guess we better fire our guy." And no shoes dropped last year. So as the season wore on, it seemed like uh, less a viable option to change the coach. November is usually the month when teams do make their changes when there's either a trade or a coach gets fired because the team says, ah, okay, we've seen 20 games, that's the quarter of the season and it's not working so we have to do something. Uh, I don't necessarily think changing the coach is all that great an idea. I think there's usually an initial burst of, okay, with the players saying, oh, I guess we better work harder for the new guy to impress him. But it's the same old story. If your team isn't good enough, it doesn't matter if you're bringing in a new coach, it's still the same players. So uh, here in Edmonton, Ken Hitchcock came in. Todd McClellan, a very good coach, uh, gets fired. Joel Quenville, obviously one of the you know three most winning uh, coaches in NHL history, gets uh, fired. Uh, and teams say, well, we'll bring in somebody else. Some teams... In Chicago, they brought in a young guy, and in uh, Edmonton, they brought in an old guy. So we'll see. <laughs> and I don't, you know, firing a general manager is goes against the grain because usually the general manager is the one firing the coach. I suspect in Philadelphia, I'm not there every day, but I'm sus- I suspect that the general manager, Ron Hextall, said, I don't want to fire the coach. I think the coach is a good coach. Uh, the people above him said, well, if you don't fire the coach, uh, you're in trouble. And I, you know, I hearken back to the old Harry Neal, Roger Nielsen story in Vancouver. When Harry was a GM, Roger Nielsen, his good friend, was the coach. And the owner, Arthur Griffiths, went to him and said, uh, Harry, we got to fire Roger. And uh, Harry said, I don't want to fire Roger. He's a good coach and a good friend. The owner came back the next day and said, should we have one press conference or two? <laughs> and Harry, <laughs> Harry fired his good friend, Roger Nielsen, and Harry stayed as the general manager. I don't know if that's the case in Philadelphia. But... Ron Hextall was in a, we have to rebuild the team. Uh, they were in cap hell when he took over from Paul Holmgren, and he's cleaned that up to a degree. And then Paul Holmgren, the president, fires Ron Hextall, who obviously dug his heels in on, on a couple of issues, whether that was winning now versus uh, rebuilding or firing the coach. But he's out of work, and he's a good GM. Now, in Philadelphia, I don't know. I, I see where Paul Holmgren said we're not – hiring any you know former uh philadelphia flyers or people with associations to the flyers so does that take chris pronger out of the (laughs) out of the picture uh i don't know uh there's lots of people around who could be a general manager in this league and they've been toiling as assistant general managers and i don't i don't think it would be that difficult a chore to find one unless they want to go immediately to chuck fletcher who got fired in minnesota or dean lombardi who is always you know, around the Philadelphia scene, uh, 
when he's been let go before. So they could go an older route or lots of younger people out there like Sean Burke and people like that. That seems to be the dilemma for a lot of teams, doesn't it, Jim? Like, which direction do you go? And I know in Edmonton, you know, you got this generational talent like Connor McDavid there. And, you know, going from you've tried the young, unproven guy like Dallas Eakins, and now you've got the old pro in, in Ken Hitchcock. Uh, is there any fear about Connor McDavid and his mindset with – you know, often a, a young star is you trying to placate him with the guy that he's playing for. Connor doesn't seem like that kind of guy to make any demands. But how do you think this is going to fit with a guy like Hitchcock? Uh, that's a good point. I I don't I don't think uh, the the uh, coach of the uh, and the player in terms of of Connor he got along with the coach Todd McCullen just fine. He liked him so. I think he was maybe more upset that they traded his uh, good friend Ryan Strom than, than you know, than the coach getting changed because that happens all the time in the NHL. I I think he's going to get frustrated if uh, they miss the playoffs again. And when Gretzky was here, the owner Peter Pockin and boasted they'd win a Stanley Cup in five years. Uh, they did win it in the fifth year, but in the fourth year they were in the Stanley Cup final uh, with Wayne Gretzky. So his frustration level was was never there because they made the playoffs the first year uh, and, you know, kept making the playoffs. If Connor McDavid wakes up one day and he's 25 and they've only made the playoffs once, it's not going to be good. Whether you're changing the coach is going to make him a, a big deal, I don't know. I, in Edmonton, if they had a poll uh, last week when Todd McClellan got fired, I would say it 75% of the fans in Edmonton said they should have fired the general manager, Peter Shirelli, and not the coach. Uh, and I think Peter realizes he's on borrowed time here if they miss the playoffs, and which is why he hired Ken Hitchcock, who was only, you know, more than willing to come in and coach the team where in the city he grew up. And if it's only for one year, that's fine. And he's won a pile of games. And if he can turn it around, great. And if he can't turn it around, he'll, he'll get some other job as an advisor. But the general manager, Peter Shirelli, will not have a job. And if I'm Peter Shirelli and I'm above Peter Shirelli and I'm seeing Philadelphia firing their general manager with about the same record as the Oilers, I'm, I'm perhaps wondering, okay, if this doesn't turn around, maybe we need to change the general manager in the regular season too. Which is, but that's always a tricky thing because then you've got a coach uh, and a general manager that – aren't necessarily on the same wavelength. Well, absolutely. And I think if you if you look at Edmonton and what they've gone through, um, this is a season where people are looking to have progress. And, and I guess we'll talk in the second period here about, um, you know, some, or sorry, we'll talk in the third period about some of the great young talent that we're seeing in the NHL these days. And that's, I guess that that is the dilemma for a guy like Shirelli is you know you're going to get stability with Hitchcock, but... You know, the NHL to me this year and the last year seems to be evolving into a little more of an offensive league. And you got to wonder, like, is Hitchcock a guy who can adapt to that? Or do you think he can embrace a little more offensive style? He can embrace. He's, he likes stars. When he coached in Kamloops, uh, he had Rob Brown, who went and played in the NHL and was Mario Lemieux's uh, winger one year, scored 49 goals. Rob Brown had 212 points that year in Kamloops. And a whole pile of players had more than 100 points. He was an offensive coach in junior. I think he, he preaches hard work and defensive responsibility in the NHL. But he had, he had Jamie Benn and Tyler Sagan last year in, in Dallas. He didn't put the handcuffs on them. Uh, he had Tarasenko in St. Louis. He didn't put the handcuffs on Tarasenko. 
he likes offensive players, but he also likes offensive players that come back into their end. That's certainly not, you know, a problem for Connor McDavid because he comes back deep t- to get the puck. So I don't think the coaching history of Ken Hitchcock in terms of being a defensive coach is going to hurt the Oilers. The problem with the Oilers is they don't have enough depth in their in their team. I mean, any coach can can look at at Connor McDavid and Leon Draisaitl and Ryan Nugent Hopkins and say those are three pretty good young players. But there's not enough supporting cast. And Alex Chason, uh, who has 10 goals and is a $650,000 signing after training camp, a good move by Peter Shirelli, has 10 goals. And if you, he's got more goals than about nine other forwards if you add up all the goals they've scored this year. So that's not a good thing. And you can't win in today's NHL unless you have a, a supporting cast. And I guess I could harken back to the trade of Taylor Hall and Jordan Everly, and you could put Hall on left wing, Everly on right wing, McDavid at center. That's a pretty good first line. And you could put uh, Dreisaitl and Nugent Hopkins together on a second line with another wing, and you'd have two pretty good lines there. And as it is now, there's not enough forwards. And uh, this goes back to the general manager trading those two players. Uh, he, he got rid of $6 million players, but they're still in cap problems even getting rid of those $6 million players. So how do you foresee the rest of the season for the Oilers? Right now, they're, I think they're three points. We're, we're recording this on Tuesday, but I think they're three points out of a out of the last playoff spot. But they, they do have uh, several games in hand on most of the teams above them. Now, I say this because I desperately want them to make the playoffs, Jim, because I, after last week, I want to see them play Calgary. We can say the Battle of Alberta is reignited. Uh, you lived through the first one. I think we, we need a playoff meeting to really ignite it again. But do you think the Oilers can get there? Well, it's the weakest division. Well, I, that and the Metropolitan are the two weakest divisions in the league. And, you know, San Jose is a good team, but not a great team, but they're the best team in this division. So certainly they could, they can get to third place. I don't know if you're going to need 95 points in this, in this division they're playing in. You might need, let, you know, fewer points than that. So they can get to third, and if Calgary finishes second, that's exactly what I would love to see in the playoffs. And I think the hockey fan would, not just in Alberta, but across the country if the games are on, on TV. So they can get there, but they're not going to get there by being a 500 team. they got to suddenly win five in a row and get back over 500 again and then get a bit of breathing room. And as they are now, they went on a California swing, beat the toughest team 4-3, you know, blew a lead in the last minute against Anaheim and then in the first minute of, of overtime and then lost to the worst team in the league in L.A. That's not good enough. Once you beat San Jose, you're probably thinking, we can win these next two games too. We went three in a row, and we're on our way. But they got three points out of six. And, you know, I looked at Ken Hitchcock behind the bench in the loss in in L.A., and I saw the same look on his face as I saw in Tom McCollin's look, you know, face when he was the coach that uh, not enough offense on this team if McDavid doesn't, uh, doesn't get a goal. And... They got two goals against the worst team in the league, so that has to improve. Okay, great stuff, Jim. We'll leave it there for the first period. When we come back, we'll talk about more controversy in Ottawa, uh, some fuss around new arenas, and also a little bit about expansion, which is on our radar as well. How's it going? I'm Dave Breckenridge. I'm the host of 10.3, Post Media's Canadian News Podcast. In every episode, we take a deeper look at major stories happening in Canada, talking with journalists who are on the ground from newsrooms across the country. So once Off the Post has you up to date with the latest in the hockey world, be sure to subscribe. 
You can find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your audio. That's 10-3, Canada's News Covered. Welcome back to the Off the Post Post Media Hockey Podcast. Uh, joined with Jim Matheson and Paul Chapman. Jim, um, more strife in Ottawa this week surrounding the owner. Uh, you know, I don't want to go down the road of Eugene Melnick and, and you know, how how far he's dragged that franchise seemingly in the last three years since they were a whisper away from the playing in the Stanley Cup. But I wanted to look at the situation compared to Edmonton and Calgary because we keep hearing this about Ottawa. You've been to the rink. It's miles out of town. It's not good to get to. They've traded away Carlson. People are disenfranchised with the owner, and now you're asking them to go a long way to invest in the hockey team. you got the new arena in Edmonton. I know in Calgary they've been frustrated that they didn't get the same thing. How important is the arena game to Canadian teams? Uh, I think it's it's very important. Although I I sometimes think the the rhetoric you get from from teams that get a new building downtown and how it's going to revitalize the entire downtown, and that uh, this is why the rink has to go downtown is a little, you know, I'm not so sure about that. I think in Columbus the rink is downtown, but if the Blue Jackets aren't playing. I don't know how much activity is around the rink downtown. It, you know, it has revitalized it to a degree, but, you know, it's not like it's a new city. So uh, that said, it's still a new rink, uh, and, you you know, you suddenly there's going to be a JW Marriott built uh, next to the rink here and office buildings and bars and stuff. But we're not talking L.A. here where it's L.A. Live where people are going to be sitting out uh, having a, a brew in uh, December uh, because there's a bar next to the rink so in calgary's case it's a very old rundown rink uh, they do the best job they can to make it you know what it is but the press box is really small there's girders in the way uh they had to flood there a couple of years ago you know and, and major water damage in the building they need a new rink in the worst way they were hoping for you know the olympic you know, plebiscite to go through and that would you know pave the way for a new rink but really in Calgary if they wanted a new rink Murray Edwards who is the primary owner of the team has every bit as much money as Daryl Cates if he wants a new rink go to the city and say okay I'll pay two-thirds of it and uh, you pay a third and we need a new rink and the rink has to be right beside where the saddle dome is nowhere else right beside the saddle dome because that's that's a major area and it's close enough to the downtown uh, and in Ottawa's case, I don't know. They need a rink downtown in the worst way. It's way too far out of town to go to Ottawa. But that said, the Ottawa team is way better this year than I thought they would be. I thought they'd be the worst team in the league by 10 miles, you know, along with Detroit, and Detroit's a 500 team. I thought losing Carlson, uh, they wouldn't be good at, at all, and yet Shabbat's come in and played well in defense, and they score a lot of goals. They give up lots, but they score a lot. So if you're a fan and you like high scoring, you're not being cheated by the players there. They're doing the best job they can. It's just that the rink is out there too far, and they lose a lot of a lot of people who would perhaps work downtown and go to a hockey game after work rather than pile their car and, and drive that way to the game. So new rinks downtown help. Helps also to have a good team, uh, <laughs> and they need to go hand-in-hand. Hand. Unless you're in Edmonton, and they made the playoffs once in 12 years, and they still go to the games no matter – if they were played uh, in Red Deer, I think the fan in Edmonton would still get in his car and drive to Red Deer to watch the Oilers play. Well, and the argument, I guess, is you've got Connor McDavid and Drysaddle, and play, even if you're not getting the results, that's worth watching. Ottawa, 
I, I know that was the dissatisfaction with them losing Carlson. They're hoping to be a little ways away to to rebuild. Obviously, they got some younger prospects and got draft picks. But you know Melnick's going to play the oh we're going to move game, uh, especially if the fan disenchantment continues. I wanted to ask you. You've been around for a long time in the NHL, um, seen the the push for the Sun Belt and everything else. With the success, well, the Oilers were going to move to Houston back yeah. in the days so were the Canucks. Lockdown. They were fighting over it. Yeah, I mean, and, and and I'm sure every team is looking at Houston right now. Any team that's that's you know not drawing fans, they're thinking, oh, Houston, maybe that'll be better. Well, uh, that's what I was going to ask you. Vegas was was a, Vegas has been an unqualified success and brought the owners a ton of money. Next week, they're expected to rubber stamp Seattle. Uh, same thing, city's fully behind it, city council fully behind it. They've got a new building that they're going to, uh, you know, set up for hockey. Um, can any owner use that movement threat when we see that expansion has just been a windfall for the owners? Uh, that's tough. That's tough. Because uh, Gary Bettman keeps finding places to go for expansion franchises. And the next one in Seattle, $650 million divided by... 31 teams uh that's a lot of money per team so uh moving a franchise to another place because no owner's going to say okay i got to pay exactly what the expansion franchise is although he should because he's getting an established team rather than than getting uh one player from each team uh and not knowing if that player can play you'd rather have an established team going to and paying a, a, a large buck uh i don't see the nhl having a great appetite for moving franchises. And then to, to Gary Bettman's credit, he's always stood firm and say, let's find some other owner here then. If the owner of, of a franchise that's, you know, says, I'm running out of money here, uh, I want to move it somewhere, he, he digs in and tries to find another owner in that city and they keep it in that city. But there are places like Carolina, and I knew they found an owner there, but they don't draw flies. Uh, they don't draw flies in Sunrise. Uh, in Florida as well. Those are two franchises that could easily move somewhere else. Arizona, of course, they still talk Arizona, about Arizona, and every year it's the same in Arizona where the franchise, where the building is. And that's another place where the, the building should be in Scottsdale instead. And, and you know, uh, being a nationalist, I know the league is not crazy about Quebec City because it's Quebec City and it's not a very big city. But if you can draw 15,300 every game in Winnipeg and there's not a lot of uh, you know, corporate support there. It's fan support there. You can draw the same 15, 16,000 in, in Quebec City. And at least you know that the people there are going to care. But that's a, a franchise that's going to have to get, you know, one of those uh, Sunbelt franchises moving to Quebec City. And there are, you know, certainly there's a person there who would probably buy the, that team. You, you don't see expansion Ottawa. being a, a viable there, Jim? Uh, uh, if for six hundred and fifty million American dollars in Quebec, that's a, a stretch. I think you could move a franchise there uh, if you could work a deal where it was uh, four hundred million U.S. as opposed to six hundred and fifty million U.S. I think it'd be a, a far more palatable for somebody buying a franchise there. I guess I'm just a child of the '80s, and with the talk of the Battle of Alberta, I would love to see those Montreal-Quebec battles back. Uh, that was an era of the yeah. NHL, which was just fantastic in terms of rivalries. And, and Boston, you yep. know, like Tor Toronto would certainly enjoy going there. Uh, you're right. You know, those are, I know Boston's got a great rivalry with Montreal. Well, I bet you they could have a pretty good rivalry with Quebec, too. And you'd have the three of them in there. 
uh, along with Toronto. So for sure, you got a built-in audience in Quebec City. I mean, it's not like you're going to have to drag people in off the streets and say, uh, name me 10 players who play on this team, and you get to two people, and they can come up with five, but can't come up with 10. They can <laughs> come up with 20 in Quebec City. Fourth-line winger, they'd know who that is. From what you hear around NHL circles, what is there a plan after Seattle? I mean, you mentioned cities like Houston. I know Portland's always been mentioned, but you know, I, you know, Vegas and Seattle may have taken care of the West for a while. Is expansion now going to be put on hold, or do you think that this is a revenue source and, and an appetite that the NHL is looking to, to move aggressively on? Well, it's a revenue source, but you have to go to a city that theoretically has got a building. Now, Seattle didn't have a, wasn't going to build a new building, but they're going to refurbish the one they've got. You can't go to a franchise and say, yeah, we'd like to play here, but it's going to be five years down the road. And you've got to come up with a new building first. Uh, I don't think there's that many places you can expand to myself. I I just don't see it other than Houston. Portland's, you know, I guess if you get, they've had a junior franchise in Portland forever and they draw well for junior hockey, as they do in Quebec City. I guess you could say if they've had an NBA team and do have an NBA team in Portland, maybe they could have a, an NHL team as well. But I don't see, they always mentioned Kansas City before in Houston. I just don't see a whole lot of cities in the U.S. that would want an NHL franchise. I think Quebec City would take one far before, uh, and ex- even an expansion franchise, they would take far one before somebody in the States. Okay, That's well, just me. Yeah, we'll leave the second period there. It is interesting. We This time next week, we should have a confirmation, or, or by the end of next week, we should have confirmation of the Seattle franchise, and then they'll move on with the name and the colors, and we'll see if they get the Vegas deal or not after that. Uh, we'll be back for a third period where we're going to talk about some of the young stars in the NHL. Would you give Brock Besser a long-term contract? Can Elias Pettersson's body stand up to the rigors of a full NHL season? Is Jacob Markstrom really the guy who can take the Canucks to the next level, or do they need to seriously look at their prospects and goal? All these questions and many more just like them are answered twice a week in our White Towel podcast. If you want to hear the stories that our writers, Ed Willis, Ben Kuzma, Patrick Johnson, and yes, even Harrison Mooney, garner each week on the Canuck beat, to find out what you need to know to be the most knowledgeable fan in your group, then you should download the White Towel Podcast. Download them, subscribe to them on Apple Podcasts, give us a good rating if you like them. But if you want to be one of the Canucks' most knowledgeable fans, you'll want to download these podcasts every week and find out what our experts have to say. Welcome back to the Off the Post Hockey Podcast. Uh, Jim, Jim Matheson from Edmonton, I wanted to ask you about Patrick Laine, and obviously a spectacular week. He's got five goals in a game. Um, we knew how talented this kid was. Just seems to be the next name in a long line of great young players who are exploding with in terms of offensive talent. Um I wouldn't. I personally wouldn't put him in the McDavid Matthews. I don't even know if Matthews is in McDavid stratosphere yet. Like, let's win a few trophies first. But uh, what do you think of Patrick Laine, and where do you think he sits in this pantheon of young stars today? He's Brett Hull. He's Brett Hull. Uh, he doesn't have to look at the net. He hits the net, and five goals and five shots uh, the other night. And like I said, he doesn't need ten to score five. So. And Brett Hall didn't need uh, six to score uh, three either. So when he, he's Mike Bossy too, if you want to go back a long, long time. 
or Alex Ovechkin. I think he's always going to be a 50-goal scorer now. He's just got the ability to score. I don't know. Uh, on a hockey team, they always say, you know, star uh, center, star defenseman, and then a winger. But if you get a winger that's going to score 50 every year, you got to pay him too. Uh, he's a $10 million player for sure. And, you know, he's only 20 years old. He's already had seven hat tricks uh, in the NHL. And he doesn't need too many chances to score. And he likes scoring. And he knows how to score. And he knows how to get into, into the open to score. So those players are very rare. Uh, he has joined the, I guess when you score that many goals, uh, in a short period of time, uh, he's going to score 50. And, you know, as Paul Maurice said, I'm kind of surprised that he didn't score 50 last year, to be honest. But, he, you know, unless the wheels fall off and he's playing on a good team, uh, he's going to score, he might score 60, which would be outstanding in today's NHL. And uh, he's going to get very rich in the new contract in Winnipeg. Uh, the problem with Winnipeg is they got lots of guys making lots of money and there's only so much money to go around. But when you got a guy that's as, as, as that much of a pure talent who can score on the power play and even strength, and this year he scored an awful lot of goals, even strength, and not so many on the power play, you're going to pay him uh, whatever he wants. Well, you're seeing, I mean, obviously, whenever we have you on, we do talk about the Gretzky era a lot because you look at the offensive firepower, certainly of that team, but also during that era, um, you know, I've been a hockey fan since since the 70s, and I'm looking at this group of young players now who are scoring goals. I mean, it used to be just a handful of years ago that 50 goals was a major achievement in the league. Now, now we're talking about a bunch of players who may get there. Is this a great offensive rival? I'm not suggesting we're at the 80s yet, but is this a good revival and a good story for the league? Uh, scoring goals is always good for the league, unless you're a coach and you don't want so many goals scored, <laughs> unless they're on by your team. Uh, yes, it's it's really good. I I don't know. Back in the 80s when Gretzky was in, was playing, there were so many. I mean, in a year, some years you'd get six, seven guys with 50 goals. And, you know, you'd need 130 points to finish in the top five in scoring. <laughs> so I don't think we're getting back to that. Uh, but the checking is such now that it's you can't cross-check guys in front of the net. You can't. You can't uh, snowshoe with them up the ice, uh, hooking them as they go through the neutral zone. The guys can build up uh, speed. There's going to be goals scored. The goaltending, you know, there's more good goaltenders than there were perhaps back in the 80s when 7-4 seemed the, the normal score for the Oilers in about 60 of the games they played that year. Uh, they scored 446 goals. Goal scoring is 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 going to be better there's more offensive players the younger players are getting into the league quicker with more talent uh they're not needing three years to get up to up to speed so there's going to be more goals scored line a is i guess the poster boy i think uh ovechkin has been the poster boy for a long time tarasenko came in from russia and, and you know was a 35 to 40 goal scorer pretty quickly uh we need more of those every team in the league should have one of those Unfortunately, the team here does not have one of those. <laughs> uh, you've got their three best players are centers, uh, McDavid, Dreisaitl, and Nugent Hopkins. One of them's playing on the wing. Right now, it looks like it's McDavid playing on the wing because Dreisaitl's playing center a lot uh, for the faceoffs and stuff on the first line. So if any team needs an offensive uh, uh, shot 
on the wing, it's the Edmonton Oilers. And I don't know if there is one of those yet, but they would be uh, coveted, I'm sure, by the Edmonton Oilers. But you got to draft those guys. Nobody's trading you Patrick Liney. Nobody's trading you, I don't think, uh, Tarasenko. Once you get one, you're not trading them. So if you're Shirelli, you don't look at moving one of those three centers for a winger? You don't think you can make that deal today? I'm not talking about for a line A, but... Uh, I would say no. Although, you know, some fan tossed out a a trade rumor, you know, a a trade speculation this morning. I was listening to the radio on the way to the rink, and it was St. Louis and the Oilers, and it was Colton Pareko and Tarasenko for Nurse and Dreisaitl. And... (laughs) And I said, yeah, well, okay, whatever. Um, Tarasenko would be the goal scorer and Pareko would be the, the strong right sh- shot def- uh, defenseman with some up- offensive upside, but I don't see the orders trading dry, uh, Leon Dreisaitl. So uh, I don't see it. P- Pugliarvi was supposed to be an offensive right winger, and so far he's spinning his wheels. And Yamamoto, a you know, 156-pound uh, right winger, is in the minors right now, and None of them is Patrick Laine, so uh, they're still missing that. And as long as they're missing it, uh, the orders are going to be in a scramble to make the playoffs. We have this big debate every year around this time about, you know, oh, this is this is when we know what teams are. We know which teams are most likely in, a, in the playoff hunt or, or have a playoff spot. Um, what surprised you so far in the season? If we've seen enough trends and it's kind of right off just a hot start or a poor start, is there is there any player or team that's really surprised you from what you've seen so far? Uh, Buffalo, uh, that's Buffalo. The wheels fall off Buffalo. They're making the playoffs. There's so many games over 500. They're like the Oilers were two years ago where all of a sudden out of the gate, you look in their 10 games over 500, and they just coasted to 103 points. Uh, that's the most surprising team for me. Um, some teams, St. Louis is a disappointment to me. Uh, I, I thought when they got O'Reilly in the summer and they got Bozak in the summer and they got Maroon, uh, they they signed uh i thought they would be much better than they are and they're one of the weaker teams and i obviously la kings are you know oh. they're they're not very good at all and kovalchuk is probably thinking there's probably another team i would rather have signed that three-year deal with especially if i'm going to play six minutes uh, in a hockey game against the edmonton oilers and sit in the bench for the whole third period so that's a grave disappointment to me i think the the interesting thing about the nhl is there's about 20 teams that are the same yeah. There are a couple. Of, there are either two games over, or two games under 500, and they're all the same. You can't tell from game from night to night which team's going to beat the other team, and they're not bad teams, but they're not great teams. And I think they're the hardest teams as a writer to cover. The good teams with good players are always easy, fun. The teams that are really bad, there's always lots going on. There's some dissent. The teams that are 500, forever 500 teams, I call them. Uh, the teams themselves think they're better than they are, but they're 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 not making much much uh, inroad into being one of the elite teams. And you don't win the playoffs when you're a couple of games over 500 or a couple of games under. You you get into the playoffs, but your chances of winning the cup aren't great. And if you're a fan, that's not what you want to see. You want to be one of the elite teams, or you know a team that gets into that group of six, seven, eight teams, or be so bad that you rebuild and then you could become the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, and you become good in a hurry. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you quickly before we go about Montreal. Um, Montreal got off to a great start. They've come back to earth a little bit, although they're still, you know, th- I think three games over 500 right now as we record this, but they get Shea Weber back this week. Now, is he going to make a, a huge difference for them? 
I know when they made the trade uh, for, and gave up on Subban, there was a lot of talk that Weber was, you know, Montreal was getting the worst of that deal because he's older, but still a physically dominant. They made him captain. Um, he's got to help them, don't you think, coming back? Well, he'll help them on the power play, which has not been very good. Uh, now they have a shot on the power play. Uh, he'll help them immediately on the power play. He's not like he's 40 years old. I mean, he's had a few injuries the last couple of years, but until then, you didn't have any injuries to speak of. Uh, certainly, the, the deal does not look very good for Montreal right now because Subban is, is one of the best players and one of the best teams in the league, and, and Weber's been hurt. But he'll help Montreal. Uh, prices bounce back to a degree. I don't think their defense is all that strong, certainly not very good uh, without Weber. I think they got to jump on teams in the early part of the season, but now they've leveled off to being what we thought the Canadians would be, and that's a, a team scrambling to m- make the playoffs. But they're still, you know, they're not, they're not the L.A. Kings, uh, and they're not the St. Louis Blues. They're competitive pretty much every game, and if you're a Montreal Canadian fan, I think that's that's what you wanted. And, you know, there's – let's put it this way. I don't think they're going to win the Cup, but they're not going to get first in the lottery either, uh, picking the lottery, I don't think, either. So uh, they need a few more wins, a few more losses, rather, before Jack Hughes uh, enters their, uh, <laughs> uh, their, their picture. And I think – the Vancouver Canucks uh, and the LA Kings, uh, I think, are going to get a pretty good shot at Jack Hughes. And the Detroit Red Wings are probably messing things up right now because Hughes is a Michigan boy, and I think he'd look awfully good playing for the Red Wings. Well, Canuck fans right now, I can tell you, with them, the Canucks getting Quinn Hughes' brother last year, they would love this team to tank for, for Hughes. That's a separate discussion for separate podcasts. They may just, not have to. They may not have, they may to, not have to tank. They just, may not, they just may not be good enough. Yeah. And, you know, you don't have to finish with the worst record in the league anymore to win the lottery. Fans would you be okay can, with that here. You can uh, you can still win the lottery. And, you know, geez, I haven't asked you one question about uh, William Nylander yet. And that's... Uh, well, okay, but we still got time. I wasn't going to ask you about Nylander, but I was going to ask you about Austin Matthews quickly. You know, the Leafs, a lot of people's preseason pick to... to at least get to the Stanley Cup or give it a good run. You know, they're plus 24. I know that's more of a soccer uh, stat, but in their goal difference. And, and Matthews has been out for a while. Do you like the look of these Leafs, especially getting a healthy Matthews back? Uh, well, they'll be better uh, offensively. They've been pretty good even without Matthews and Nylander. So good coaching, and they have enough offensive players to. I mean, Tavares has played great this year, and Marner's been excellent as well. Uh, enough offense to to uh, get by without those players. I know that uh, the deadline's coming up. December 1st is the deadline to sign Nylander. I'd be trading him. I'm sorry. Trade him. Get a defenseman. Uh, and you may not get a player that's quite as good as as Matthews but or as uh, Nylander, but a good defenseman is more important than another winger, and there's only so much money to go around. If you can trade him to a team and get a $5 million uh, defenseman back for the next four years, I would suspect in his heart of hearts, privately, Mike Babcock would rather have a top four defenseman than the uh, third or fourth best forward signed. 
And uh, if you could trade Nylander for a good defenseman to play with Riley, I think uh, uh, the coach would like that. I don't know about the fans, but Marner's better than Nylander, I think. And Tavares and Matthews are one, two, and then Marner's three, and then Nylander's no better than the fourth best forward. And if you can get trade him for a defenseman who's going to be your second best defenseman for your fourth best forward, I think uh, that's what the way to go. It's great stuff, Jim. I know you got a game to get to. Thank you for joining us. We'll leave it there now. Um, I want to thank everyone for listening. This is the Off the Post podcast. Download us on Apple iTunes or an Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you next week.